5, verses 16 through 18. So I'll give you a second to flip to that. So the text is, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. That might have been the shortest scripture reading ever. After coming out of Exodus for the last few months, where it's been uh, chapters, uh, this is uh, a little bit of a change. I'm, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad to have you with us this morning. What is going on outside, for real? Like, snow? I know it's March. I'm from the South, so I'm always, like, trying to tease myself and trying to convince myself that once March comes, like, I, my, our staff and pastors make fun of me. I'm always the first one to wear shorts. I'm always the first one to wear, I wore a polo this week outside because it's supposed to be 50, without realizing that it wasn't going to be 50 until 5 o'clock at night, and it was 27 outside when I walked outside. So I'm just always like, it's seven years I've lived in Indianapolis, and seven years I continue to just, you know, live under this myth of uh, what March is supposed to be. So uh, we are uh, back into spiritual formation, and again, if you've been tracking with us, I know most of you probably attend church on average maybe once or twice a month, so uh, <clears throat> you're going, why, why Exodus? Why prayer? This, this is confusing. Last fall, uh, we started a journey together um, that we just kind of called the year of spiritual formation. And as we looked at a couple uh, years ago, we did a health survey and kind of looked at our church and said, what's going well? What's not going well? Where do we have opportunities to grow? And we just, as an elder team, kind of prayed about our future together. And one of the things that was clear to us is that in the Midwest, um, we don't do like discipleship really well with Jesus. Like we do church attendance, we do like religious uh, stuff kind of well, but <clears throat> when it comes to actually learning to be an apprentice of Jesus, learning to be a disciple of Jesus, which is to say like really the heart of life with Jesus is to learn to be an apprentice, we have, <clears throat> we have much to learn. And so um, we started this series on spiritual formation, and, and this is kind of the heart of it is, is this big idea, and we'll throw it up on the screen here. Um, learning to practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. That's what we're after, learning to practice the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus uh, being, uh, being with Jesus in relationship with him, uh, becoming like him in terms of character transformation, and then <clears throat> learning to do what he did. And so that's our goal with spiritual formation is, is to take, so we're kind of interspersing uh, Exodus with these little spiritual formation series, and these, uh, these little mini-series are uh, particular attempts to get really practical with how we pray. And so uh, we gave a vision for spiritual formation in the fall, and now we're saying about every six to eight weeks, we're dropping a short little series on one of these 11 core practices. And I just want to remind you, I'm going to throw some of these up. We have a ton of resources that we're putting out uh, to really help you engage with us. So if we could slide through these, we have a spiritual formation guide, and our hope is to see uh, you know, 70% of our congregation take one of these and fill it out. And again, we're not as concerned about the end result as about you engaging in the actual process, right? And so we want you to take this guide, and maybe this is new for some of you, but we walk you through. We, we hand-wrote this for you. As we looked at um, most spiritual formation plans, they were written for people who have like a PhD in like spirituality, and most of us are like getting our GED still, and we're trying to figure out how to get started. And so we wrote this really with you in mind. It's just kind of an ordinary person who's not a monk in mind, who has a job, who has like real-life responsibilities, and we put this up for you. And so uh, you see the practices on the right, and you can see how this works. You can download this off our website, use this in a discipleship group, a missional community. Uh, next slide, we've also got um, resources like uh, podcast interviews that we're putting up. So our pastors kind of at the beginning of each one of these series will talk about the series and preview it a little bit, uh, our teaching team. And then, uh, and then we'll have stories throughout where we're kind of interviewing members of our church and talking to them about what it actually looks like to engage uh, with this uh, if you're not a pastor Next slide, uh, we have the forward practice guide. So again, uh, the idea with spiritual formation for us is we don't think our way forward. We build our way forward. We act our way into it. We, we learn to practice and experiment and try to figure out what it looks like to please the Lord. And so we're not going to just like, this is, this is not strategic planning for those of you who are like big strategic planners. 
this is, we have to experiment with these practices, and, and we have to remember that we're embodied people, and we need concrete practices to help us move forward. And so, uh, Pastor Josh Staley has actually written this guide for use in missional communities or discipleship groups. And so, uh, a really simple thing that you could pick up and literally just walk through. I mean, it is like, uh, it is in every way just a beginner's guide to practicing prayer. Uh, and then maybe one more slide. Uh, yeah, we have blog posts also being written by members of our church. So Deb Dunlevy has a fantastic blog up on prayer, and we'll be doing more of those as we go through the series. So those are available to you, uh, but we're jumping into prayer uh, for the next couple weeks. Today, we kick off with First uh, Thessalonians 5, um, uh, pray without ceasing, which already has some of us super uncomfortable. I love that uh, Will and Becky just said, like, uh, number one, isn't it super humbling to know that every single week, like we show up kind of thoughtlessly and in a hurry and we get our coffee and we're just like, isn't it cool to know that every single week you're being prayed for? I mean, I just think like that's the most humbling thing to know that there's a group of people who have come early to pray for God to move on our behalf. So thank you guys for doing that. And I love that you acknowledge uh, that, that all of us in a sense are novices. All of us in a sense are beginners in the school of prayer. And so um, I know some of us are already just like, oh, I'm, I'm already anxious. I'm already like, feel like I, I pray without ceasing. I would just like to pray. Like, let's just start there. Like, let's not get to the unceasing. Let's just get to the starting point of prayer. So I want to, here's what I want to do is we kind of open. I want to just cast a vision again for prayer. We've taught on prayer multiple times over the last several years. We did it in the Sermon on the Mount series. We went through the Lord's Prayer line by line a few years ago. But let me just remind you, I want to just remind you what we mean when we talk about prayer. Because I think some of our problems with prayers. We don't understand what prayer is or what it's supposed to be. So I want to talk about kind of um, uh, a vision for prayer. And then I want to get real and talk about where we actually often find ourselves struggling with prayer. So what is prayer? Uh, Depending on the tradition you grew up in. So if you grew up in church, which most of us do in the Midwest, uh, and you grew up in kind of a high church tradition, uh, like with formal, uh, we might call it liturgy. You kind of learned to pray liturgies. Maybe you learned to pray the Hail Mary as a kid with rosary beads. Maybe you learned uh, to pray in confession and the kind of the scripted written prayers of the church. And, and really prayer for you was mostly what happened on Sunday. And it was just something you got through so you could get to brunch, right? Like that's how some of us tend to think of prayer. Some traditions talk about liturgy. Uh, Jesus talked about prayer um, in kind of organic agricultural terminology and metaphor. He talked about abiding in the vine, right? In John 15, he talks about being connected to the vine. And this idea of prayer is, is this kind of organic connection and relationship that we have with God. And he says, apart from me, if you're not connected to me, if you're not abiding with me, that word there just means to dwell or reside with, you can do nothing. So Jesus talks about abiding. Uh, If you grew up in kind of an evangelical, like free church, non-denominational kind of church, you may have heard it referred to as a quiet time or a devotional time. Some people talk about that uh, as prayer. Um, If you grew up maybe in a more Catholic tradition, that might be, or uh, even Episcopal or Anglican kind of mystical traditions, they talk about prayer as contemplation, um, which sounds kind of weird to some of us, but that also can be prayer. Um, The Desert Fathers and Mothers were a group of people uh, a couple of centuries ago that talked a lot about prayer. They actually kind of left their normal lives and, and moved out into the wilderness and into the desert, and they wrote a lot of great things on prayer. And one of my favorite definitions of prayer comes from uh, a guy named Theophan the Recluse, right? They always had these like cool titles, you know. And so Theophan the Recluse says this about prayer. <clears throat> to pray is to descend with the mind, so not leaving the mind behind, but with the mind into the heart and there to stand before the face of the Lord, ever present, all seeing within you. It's much more than like praying a scripted written prayer. The mind descending into the heart, laying all of our life and our heart before the ever-present, all-seeing Lord who lives in us. Uh, Brother Lawrence, who became famous for his writings on uh, prayer, he uh, washed dishes, and it's kind of like his job, and, and he found uh, a way to kind of integrate his prayer life with, uh, with his dishwa- dishwashing, and he was uh, very sought out in terms of his uh, prayer, prayer practices. He called it practicing the presence of God. Just simply practicing the presence of God. Kind of a, a whole life reorientation to God, right? And it, and it involves all of our life. So as he's washing dishes, he's praying for himself, for other people, for the glory of God. Simone Weil, who was uh, a French kind of mystic philosopher, 
uh, activist uh, about a century ago. She says this, prayer consists of attention. It is the orientation of all the attention of which the soul is capable toward God. It is the orientation of our whole person, our whole soul towards God. Uh, Our simple definition for prayer uh, is much less mystical and much more basic, but I think uh, it gets at the heart of what Jesus is talking about and and what Paul's talking about here. And this would be kind of our our definition. It's simply conversing with God about what we're doing together. It, It envisions a life together with God and says prayer is just simply the act of talking to God discussing with God, listening to God. It's a two-way conversation with God about what we're doing together in the world, right? God's called us to live our life before him uh, and and, and then to bring those things before him in uh, conversation and dialogue. And so this is the vision of prayer. Now, the challenge when you actually start to read uh, about prayer or as we talk to many of you about prayer, uh, just real talk here, like most of us struggle to experience the full orientation of which the soul is capable towards God. I mean, like, we say we pray, but when you actually look at it statistically, research says very few people pray on a regular basis um, in any kind of meaningful way, and the majority of those who pray uh, experience a huge gap between what they want prayer to be and what it actually is. It is less than satisfying for most people, right? You kind of walk away going, is that it? Like, is that all that there is? Like, it's, I mean, I think less than 25% of people who are surveyed in a recent uh, poll said that they experience any level of satisfaction or joy or happiness in their prayer life, right? And so there's often this gap between um, how we would like for prayer to be and what we actually experience prayer to be. Um, Philip Yancey wrote a book on prayer several years ago, and he talks about why it's such a struggle for so many people to pray. I mean, it's like, I've never met a person that's like, I'm awesome at prayer. Like, I, I, I don't know if you feel that way, but I've just never met the person that's like, man, I am killing it when it comes to prayer. I don't know if that's like a right thing to say, but like I am crushing prayer uh, or something like that. Like it just, it never seems to happen. And he gives a couple of reasons and maybe these will resonate, maybe they won't. Um, He says, for some people, um, we struggle because there's been all kinds of advances in science and technology. And we just kind of live in this world uh, where, you know, the things that people used to pray about, now we understand as a modern society how this stuff works. And so, uh, that can kind of undercut some of our uh, desire to prayer because we just kind of assume like the machine's going to like automate it and it's just going to happen. And, and maybe that was all just kind of like a myth for first century simple uh, thinking people. Um, for others of us, we have doubts and we experience deep doubts with God. Um, we wonder if God really exists and, we, and kind of the, the cultural air that we breathe is one of skepticism. And so we just honestly are kind of asking the question like, does prayer really work? And we have these doubts about its effectiveness. Um, another barrier he lists is prosperity. Um, he says, basically, uh, why, do we, why, need, why, why should we need to pray when our cupboards are full, right? Like, this idea that, like, I don't need to pray. I can just go purchase my way to happiness. I don't pray because I have all that I need, essentially. And so we don't have the sense of desperation and vulnerability and helplessness that previous generations of folks might have had that were living more uh, hand-to-mouth. And so prosperity can really cut the nerve of prayer. Um, We also see the rise of therapy, and so instead of talking to God, we talk to a counselor, we talk to a therapist, Uh, and again, I'm all for counseling. I see a counselor on a regular basis, but some of the things we're talking to our therapist about, uh, we actually should be talking to God about first and most, and so uh, we want to vent. We put stuff on social media. Social media can kind of be therapeutic. We go to missional community. We're in a discipleship group. And the irony is we get to the end of the week and we've talked to our problem, uh, about our problems to every person except for God. And by then we're just exhausted, right? Because we've shared with so many people. Um, to get more emotional about it, like for some of us, it's just disappointment with God. He says, man, like so many of us, We've cried out in the midst of our infertility. We've cried out in the midst of job loss. We've cried out in the midst of cancer. We've cried out for friends. We've cried out for situations to be alleviated. And God just seems to not answer those prayers. And for some of us, it's deeply personal. There's bitterness and there's resentment and there's disillusionment and there's even a sense of maybe despair. Because we're like, God, I I knocked and I asked and I prayed and I sought and you seem to be absent. And so many people, that's their experience with God. And so what ends up happening is prayer 
in the church is just weird, right? Prayer, like I've been to different prayer meetings uh, since I became a Christian and, and showed up at different places. Like prayer ends up in the church being basically like a place where we either tell God what to do, like God, here's what I need. If you can just come on through, like God's an executive assistant, you know, and you're kind of like the chairman of the board. And God, if you could just kind of execute my game plan, that'd be awesome. Uh, for some of us, uh, in some situations, I've been in weird prayer meetings, we've had some of these here at Soma in the past, where prayer is like this passive-aggressive game of correcting one another's theology. You ever been in a prayer meeting like that? Somebody prays something, and then somebody like gently corrects them, and it's like, oh Lord, we thank you that you, you know, want to bring people to Jesus, and then somebody else is like, but God, you're sovereign, and you're going to do that in your time, and it becomes this like prayer battle, you know, where like people are just like correcting each other's, like it just gets weird, you know? Um, if for some of us, it's just, again, a box to be checked, like if you're kind of more of like an activist type, prayer is just that thing you basically do before you get to the real work of God's kingdom. So it's like, okay, God bless this. Okay, now let's strategize, let's organize, let's get to it because that's clearly a waste of time. And, and, and prayer just gets really hard and weird. So we have in this text here this invitation to pray. So let me just read this again um, for us to listen to. Uh, in the words of Paul, one of the masters of apprenticeship to Jesus. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice always. Pray unceasingly. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Joyful, prayerful, thankful life with God. That's the imitation from Paul, that our prayers even ought to be joyful, that they ought to be filled with gratitude in the midst of real life. I love Eugene Peterson's uh, translation of this in the message. He says, be cheerful no matter what. Pray all the time. Thank God no matter what happens. This is the way God wants you who belong to Christ Jesus to live. These uh, imperatives here, these commands, rejoice and pray and give thanks. Uh, there are uh, three words that are kind of at the heart of the New Testament in terms of our spirituality. Uh, one of them kind of speaks to like uh, charisma, this idea of joy at, at the root of its charisma. One of, one of the words is kind of a general word, uh, prosukomai for prayer, just kind of like a junk drawer category for all prayer. Uh, give thanks is this word eucharista, which, from which we get eucharist if you grew up in kind of a Catholic or Episcopalian background. The, 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 the heart of these, though, is that they're all in the present tense. They're supposed to be a continuing, recurring reality in the life of a believer. And it's not just here. We see this throughout the New Testament. You think, I think about Jesus in Luke chapter 18, uh, verse 1. If we could go to that, that next slide there. Um, he told his disciples a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart, right? Isn't that so how the struggle is with prayer? To not lose heart, to keep praying, keep seeking, keep knocking. Romans 12, uh, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says something similar. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation or suffering. Be constant in prayer. So what does it look like for us to, to do this? All right, that's kind of what we want to get at. What does it look like for us to actually engage in unceasing, unbroken conversation with God about what we're doing together? Two things that I, I want to just kind of, I want us to think about. The first is pray what you've got. And the second is for us to pray at some time before we think about praying at all times. <laughs> right? Pray what you got and pray at some time before we think about praying all the time. So this idea of praying what you got, Will said this, and it's such a, like God is so amazing that Will said exactly uh, what I kind of want to get into in this first point. We did not converse in, in, uh, beforehand. Um, one of the challenges with prayer and, and, and a lifestyle of prayer is that we often pray what we ought, not what we've got. We often pray what we think we should pray, completely disconnected from the life we're actually living, the struggles we're actually experiencing. Like, it's amazing to me how compartmentalized we are in our prayer life. It's like, we're praying all of these things that, you know, somebody taught us a long time ago, or some scripted thing, or what we think God wants to hear from us, rather than what's actually happening in our real lives. We pray what we ought. We pray what we should. We pray what somebody else told us we should, rather than what we've got. 
C.S. Lewis, the great uh, Christian author, uh, atheist convert to Christianity, the great Christian author, said this, we must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. Now, I don't know if you experience this, but oftentimes what hinders our prayer life is we are praying things that either we don't believe in, they're not relevant to where we are, um, or maybe there's something that's kind of a, a leftover. There's, there's kind of maybe an expiration date. Again, like you think about the refrigerator, you've got something in there that smells kind of funny that's been in there too long, and there's things that we're praying that smell kind of funny that have reached their expiration date, and we continue to offer them up to God rather than uh, the freshness of what we're actually experiencing in the moment. Dallas Willard says, prayer simply dies from efforts to pray about good things that honestly do not matter to us. The way to get to meaningful prayer for those good things is to start by praying for what we are truly interested in. Now, that sounds really selfish, but hang on. The circles of our interests will inevitably grow in the largeness of God's love. Many people have found prayer impossible because they thought they should only pray for wonderful but remote needs they actually had little or no interest in or even knowledge of. So I want to just make a plea with you that the beginning of praying without ceasing is praying what you've got, not what you ought. This is a call for just simple prayer. Um, This is a call for honest prayer. Now, like, I know I shouldn't have to say that in the church, but we do so much, like, pretending in the church. We do so much posturing with God. We're not often honest with God in our prayers. Our our prayers are full of lofty uh, theological language. We intellectualize things with God. Again, it's the idea of the mind going into the heart. We, we, We tend to intellectualize and have this kind of abstract relationship with God instead of a real, concrete, honest, vulnerable one. Um, this is a call for, uh, I love uh, Yancey, I think, calls them inappropriate prayer with God. We tend to think that our prayers with God have to be buttoned up and like super appropriate. And so it's kind of like, think about like going to church uh, maybe 50 years ago and you had to put on a suit. And, and it kind of says basically like that's what we do with God is we, we put on our suit, so to speak, and we come to God with these formal prayers that are just empty and hollow. And, and they're appropriate, but they're not powerful, right? They're not meaningful to us. And if you really study the Bible, I mean, I went back and looked, there's something like 99 references in the New Testament to prayer, all kinds of examples and stories of prayer throughout the Old Testament. Um, One of the things you see is this is actually how people prayed in the Bible. They prayed what they had, not, they prayed what they they got, not what they, ah, that's not grammatically correct, but that's what they did. Okay, so you have Moses, the man who by the end of Exodus, we just studied this, would be saying, God, show me your glory, right? That's the kind of prayer we think we ought to pray, show me your glory. But the, ex, the, the Moses of the early chapters of Exodus starts with, God, I am not eloquent. God, I don't know what I'm doing. God, I am frustrated. Uh, God, you've given me these miserable church people to be around, and he's just like complaining to God, but he's just bringing it before God and saying, God, I don't know what to do about this, but, but you've done, I mean, it's the same man praying, show me your glory, that says, you, you've basically ruined my life. Uh, Elijah, we studied Elijah a few weeks ago. I love, I mean, Elijah, again, the guy that, like, God takes up and, and, like, takes to heaven. I mean, this is a guy that prayed, and there was, there was three years, James chapter 5 says, uh, we see in, in 1 Kings 18, of no rain. He prayed for a drought, and it happened, right? Like, I don't know if you've ever done that. It's not happened to me, okay? So, this guy, Elijah, there's a phenomenal story in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 24, where some teenagers are basically making, Elijah apparently struggled with male pattern baldness, uh, and, and they call him baldy, right? And Elijah prays down curses on them, and two female bears come out of the woods and maul 42 teenagers. So if you're a parent of teenagers, I mean, you've thought this before, right? Like, I mean, this is, this is crazy, but he prays, and bears come out of the woods and maul people. I, I don't know what to call that except inappropriate prayer, right? That, what do you do with that? David, King David, the man after God's own heart, would pray, God, the one thing that I seek is to see you in your temple, to see your beauty. God, I want to delight in your presence. And in Psalm 137, praying against his enemies, says, God, would you dash their children against the rocks? What? And if you read the Psalms, that's what you see in the Psalms. Inappropriate, honest, 
all-inclusive prayers, people praying what they've got, not what they ought. So, okay, well, that's like Old Testament. These people are human. They're not perfect. What about Jesus? Did Jesus pray appropriate buttoned-up prayers? Hebrews chapter 5 suggests not. When Jesus was alive in the days of his flesh, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Isn't it inappropriate for God to pray with tears, for him to be freaking out and crying? Apparently not. With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So there's this tension between inappropriateness and reverence here. But the point is that Jesus cried out from his heart. He prayed what he's got, not just what he ought. And this is what we see all over the Bible. This invitation to pray as we really are, not as we should be. To pray our fears. To pray our anxieties. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, one of the first verses I ever memorized as a new Christian, as a teenager. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6, right? Um, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Take your, I mean, like we we are, statistically speaking, for those of you under the age of 35, one of the most anxious generations in American history. He says, take your anxieties and pour them out before God. Pray your anxieties. Even if your anxiety is about God himself, pray your anxieties. Pray your fears. Pray your gratitude. Pray even your loneliness and your confusion and your doubt and your anger, like those hard things that we often don't want to take to God. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 88. This is the end of the Psalm. Now, most of the Psalms, they'll be kind of like a a passionate plea, and then by the end, they're like, okay, God, you're amazing, and you're awesome, and I want to see you in your temple. This is the end of Psalm 88, with no bow tied up on the end of it. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My my companions have become darkness. Selah. That's how it ends. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I mean, that's essential. Like, that's where we get that song. But God says, hey, I'm not afraid of those hard emotions. I'm not afraid of those. Pray what you've got, not what you ought. Pray your confusion. Pray your doubt. Pray your tears. Pray your anger. This is the only way you're going to grow in intimacy with God, is to learn to direct those things back to God, to bundle them up, to name them and own them and bundle them up and just lay them before God. Pray what you've got. This is how any human, I mean, you know this is true. Any human relationship, when you stay superficial, the relationship remains shallow, right? Like, you know those people that you have to work to, like, have coffee with, and you're just, there's just not chemistry, and you're trying, and you're trying, but one of the barriers is, like, there's no vulnerability. Like, they won't be vulnerable. You won't be vulnerable. Everybody's kind of posturing and that kind of thing. It's the same thing with God. We only grow in our relationship when we're vulnerable. I think about my own marriage. My wife and I have been married 15 years this summer, and we moved to Indianapolis uh, about seven years into our marriage, and we had, in our first couple years in Indianapolis, I mean, up to that point, we had a, a great relationship. We rarely fought. I mean, we had a pretty awesome relationship, and we moved here to a city we'd never lived in uh, with four small children under the age of five, and it was, I mean, it was an understatement to say it was hard. And um, what began to happen in that period of time is because we were busy and because we were afraid and because we were frustrated, we began to bury things that were happening in our hearts. And we were really kind of sinning against each other and there was bitterness beginning to kind of develop. And it would, we kind of played this passive aggressive thing. We'd be like, hey, I love you. I hate you. You know, like we're doing this kind of thing, this dance back and forth. And we finally reached a place where we literally had to go to counseling and say, hey, like, we have some things to talk about. We need to get vulnerable about these, these ways that we've hurt each other. We can choose to pretend like everything's okay and choose to present this nice, like, pastoral couple who's got it all together, or we can be vulnerable and we can enter into a season of pain, hoping that in that pain, that vulnerability and that truth 
will be the very thing that unleashes the grace of God in our lives, the depth of relationship. Like we're at one of those inflection points in our marriage where we can choose to be vulnerable and grow through this or choose to be nice and kind and play pretense and be happy on the outside, but on the inside, this relationship begins to die. We chose that season of pain. And man, it was hard. Like, I don't know if you've ever had to have the, the talk with people that you love, saying things that like you wouldn't normally say to them, and you're, and you're just like, somebody says something, you're like, really? Like, you think that about me? Yeah, and let me tell you what I think about, I mean, like, it was that kind of honesty and rawness, but man, the way that God has grown our marriage through this season of vulnerability would have never happened unless we were honest about the grief and the pain and the frustration and the anger, and it is the same thing with So let me give you three little application points here, and then we'll move on to the second piece quickly. Um, How do we do this? What does it look like to pray what we've got? The first thing, uh, and the most important thing, I think, is our image of God. We're never going to be honest and vulnerable before God if we don't actually believe he's the kind of God or the kind of Father who welcomes us as we are, not as we should be. The reason that we often aren't honest with God is because we're not sure God is safe. We're not sure God is the kind of compassionate, merciful God who really wants to welcome us and to see us as we are, not as we project ourselves to be. And it's a barrier. So I would just say, like, more than anything else, I could give you techniques. I can talk about prayer guides. We can do formation, uh, sermons. But at the end of the day, more than anything else, your image of God will determine your degree of honesty in prayer. And what we often need is to have our image of God healed before we can really go deep in prayer with God. Again, Philippians, he says this, most of my struggles in the Christian life circle around the same two themes. Why God doesn't act the way we want God to and why I don't act the way God wants me to. Prayer is the precise point where those themes converge. I pray to God. He doesn't do what I want. God asks things of me, and I don't do what he wants. We're like this married couple that just can't seem to come to terms with one another. And, and the Bible says, yes, bring those things before your heavenly father. Those are the things that he wants to hear. Those spaces are the very ones where we're, we're being invited to be honest with God. The second thing is, um, we should, in this process, expect distractions. And we often, I don't know if you ever sat down to pray, and you're trying to pray, and then like, and people talk about this even in church, like I come into church, and all of a sudden I get bombarded with like lustful thoughts. Like, can we talk about that in church? I get bombarded with like weird, bizarre images, things from my past begin to come up. Uh, I just get, dist- like, it's amazing how um, you try to focus for five minutes of prayer, and you, you've got what Henri Nouwen calls monkey mind. Like, your, your mind is just like a banana tree, he says, just like thoughts going everywhere, weird, bizarre things. You're just like, I haven't thought about that in years, and you try to pray, and all of a sudden it comes in like, is that just me? Okay, I'm alone, but whatever. So these distractions uh, we often see as like things we have to get out of our minds. But all the great spiritual writers actually say, if we're praying what we've got, we learn to see distractions Uh, as stepping stones rather than barriers to prayer. These are the very things that God wants us to pray about. There's a reason why they're coming into our mind. There's a reason that they're flooding our thoughts. It's because we've spent a lot of time busying ourselves, distracting ourselves, pushing those things down, and you can't push those things down in the presence of God. He's going to bring them to attention. So rather than seeing those as barriers and saying, let me get back to the real work of prayer, God, your glory. No, like what is that thing? And use it as a stepping stone into honest prayer. The last little piece here on praying what you've got is like some of you are going, okay, that sounds awesome, but I'm just not feeling it. Like I'm a feeler, you know, I got to feel like I'm in the mood. There's something about like, you know, I need candles and I need like some kind of romantic music and I've just got to have like the mood's got to be right and I just wait for it to be authentic, you know, and like organic and I just want it to happen. Okay. Um, One, like name me the relationship where that's like sustainable to any degree beyond like the initial honeymoon period, okay? But, but like don't wait to feel it. Don't wait for the thrills. Prayer's something you've got to do in order to do more of it. So don't sit around waiting for the moment. Don't sit around waiting to feel it. Um, you've got to move beyond that into a more settled disposition of just praying what you've got, where you are as it comes. 
C.S. Lewis, in his great book, Mere Christianity, talking about marriage, uh, I think there's a lot of analogies here with our prayer life. Here's what he says. People get from books, it's a little long, so hang with me. People get from books the idea that if, you're mar- if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever, which being in love, he basically means like these feelings and this thrill of like the relationship. As a result, when they find that they are not in love anymore, they think this proves they have made a mistake and they're entitled to a change, not feeling it anymore, we've fallen out of love. Not realizing that, when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. In this department of life, as in every other, thrills come at the beginning and do not last. Let the thrill go, let it die away. Go on through that period of death into the quieter interest and happiness that follow. And you will find you are living in a world of new thrills all the time. But if you decide to make thrills your regular diet and try to prolong them artificially, they will all get weaker and weaker and fewer and fewer. And you will be a bored, disillusioned old man for the rest of your life. It is because so few people understand this that you find many middle-aged men and women maundering about their lost youth. At the very age when new horizons ought to be appearing and new doors opening all around them. It is much better fun, I don't know what that means, much, much more fun <clears throat> to learn to swim than to go on endlessly and hopelessly trying to get back the feeling you had when you first went paddling as a small boy. Pray what you've got. And then secondly, pray at some time. Like, <clears throat> before we get to, excuse me, Before we get to praying all the time without ceasing, we've got to learn to pray sometime, right? Like, as much as we'd like to say, I mean, some of us, it's like winning the lottery. We're like waiting for the windfall before we learn how to be good stewards of our money. It's like, I'm going to get good at money when I win the lottery. No, you won't. And it's the same thing with prayer. It's like, I want the all-night prayer meeting, or I'm going to go to like this big worship event or worship concert, and we're waiting for like God to just like drop out of the sky before, then then I'll learn how to pray. No. You learn to pray at some time. It has to be learned. Prayer is a skill. It is a habit. It is a practice. The ancient writers called it a discipline that must be learned like anything else, like learning the piano, learning the guitar, right? You start out, it's like every American that's maybe under the age of 50, like we, we speak a little bit of Spanish and we play a little bit of guitar. Like there's just something about that. And it's like you've learned a little bit about the guitar, right? And, and you know, you start with the scales, GCDC, like every Christian worship song written, written in the 90s when I was learning the scales were all GCDC chords, super annoying and not great art and music. But nonetheless, you learn the scales, then you learn to improv, right? You don't improv first. Some of us try to get into prayer starting with improv rather than learning the scales, learning the basics. And so there's been, in the history of the church, a tradition which I found super helpful. I am a notorious bad prayer. This is a confession of your pastor, okay? I am a doer. I am an activist. I want to go, and, and I'm, I'm a thinker, and I'm a doer, I am a horrible prayer, and I have been historically a horrible prayer ever since I was a young Christian, okay? And, and I was so encouraged when I read uh, Thomas Merton's autobiography. Um, he was a Catholic mystic and was known for, like, this rich prayer life. He basically says, we're all beginners all the time. And I was like, yes. Okay, here's a guy who is a monk who lives at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky and does nothing but pray. And towards the end of his life, he says, I'm still a beginner, okay? But what I've learned is this ancient practice of what the church has called fixed hour prayer can be super helpful in helping to guide and structure. So what I'm, what I'm arguing for is we need to schedule it. Again, like I know we love spontaneity, but like how's that working for you in your prayer life? Like I'm gonna do it when I, when I get to it. It's just, it. It doesn't work super well. And so when you see the Bible, you read through, you see that there were these set prayer times. Psalm 119, uh, the psalmist says, seven times a day I pray before my Lord. Uh, Daniel, in chap- uh, Daniel chapter 6 was actually thrown into prison because three times a day, morning, midday, and evening, he would pray, and he actually got thrown into prison for this regular prayer life. Uh, you think about, I think about the rule of St. Benedict, right? Benedict was a guy who grew up in kind of a wealthy environment in the 5th century, and he left to flee out into the desert to escape what he felt like was the corruption of the world, and he gathered a community of men around him, and he wrote what became the rule of St. Benedict, 
which is essentially his kind of uh, slogan was pray and work, right? And he saw those two things as very complimentary, pray and work, ora and labora, right? That was kind of Benedictine's thing. And he set up a rhythm of prayer where they had seven uh, different movements of prayer throughout the day. If you go to some of the uh, abbeys, arch abbeys, like the one in, uh, at St. Meinrad in southwestern Indiana, there's a beautiful uh, monastery down there. We go down every year uh, with our kids and their school, and, uh, and you, they're still, their life is oriented around fixed hour prayer. Vigils at 3 a.m. in the morning, lauds at daybreak, prime at the start of the workday, terce at mid-morning, sext, S-E-X-T, midday, Known at mid-afternoon, vespers in the evening, and compline before bed. And, and every uh, couple hours, there's the ringing of the bells, and there's the gathering of these uh, monastic uh, folks, and there's chanting. And it's just this reminder that all of my day is supposed to be oriented towards life with God. Now, that was unsustainable for most normal people like you and I. So there was a guy named Thomas Cranmer that came along in the midst of the Protestant Reformation. He uh, edited kind of that and essentially came up with with what he called the Book of Common Prayer in 1549. And he shortened those prayers essentially to uh, morning prayers and evening prayers. And then he developed kind of a routine of reading scripture that would take those folks through the Old Testament once a year, the New Testament twice a year, uh, and the Psalms once a month. And so some people, myself included, use the Book of Common Prayer, use what's called the Daily Lectionary to help guide the daily practice of prayer. Um, in South Korea, I have a friend who's South Korean, and uh, he planted a church in Baltimore a couple years ago, uh, Dan Hyun, and uh, Dan was telling us one time about uh, this, I mean, South Koreans pray probably more than any other Christians in the world, and every single morning they get up for what they call early prayer, and they gather together as a community every single, I mean, one of the most persecuted groups in the world, uh, the Koreans, and they spend an hour out loud. They just literally get in a group, and everybody prays out loud at the same time for an entire hour. I mean, can you imagine that? Um, and so th- these rhythms of prayer, though, have informed and shaped uh, Christians for centuries. And so I would just kind of argue, like, if you don't have a rhythm routine of prayer, start praying at some time. Maybe a good starting point would be morning prayer and evening prayer. You know, again, five minutes, ten minutes, pray what you got. Okay, if you can't pray for an hour, pray for two minutes, right? Two minutes of prayer is better than no prayer. Five minutes of prayer is better than two minutes of prayer, right? But, but my point is, you have to schedule it. Nothing worth doing, whether it's the gym or a diet plan or whatever, is, uh, it starts authentically and organically. It starts with habits that give way to the authentic and that give way to the organic and that give way to the improv. And so I don't know what this is going to look like for you. For me, it looks like in the mornings trying to, and again, it's, it's not every morning, but trying to get up before my kids get up. I have four kids. Uh, we take them to school in the mornings, and so it usually starts, if I, if I can do it, uh, at around 6 a.m., just a few moments of silence. Um, I use uh, a daily lectionary, and so I use a combination of written prayers from like the Valley of Vision or the Book of Common Prayer or even just the Lord's Prayer. And I take about five minutes to kind of center myself in the presence of God and just uh, use something that's been called breath prayer. So I'll take a psalm and I'll read a psalm and I'll pick a word out of that. So this week, one of the words was, uh, God, you are my hiding place. And I'll just breathe in, God, you are my hiding place. God, breathe out, God, would you be my hiding place today? And it's just a simple act of centering and listening for the presence of God, welcoming the presence of God. It could be as simple as uh, what some people call the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. It could be as simple as, Lord, help. (laughs) Lord, I need you. Welcome, Holy Spirit. These are all ways of entering into an active awareness of God's presence. And then we just pray what we've got. We take those things that are on our hearts and we lay them before God in honest, open prayer. And then at the end of the day, maybe you could add a simple practice like the prayer of examine, which we've taught, taught on here before and would we'll be happy to send you more information on that if you want, where you review your day, you thank God for the good things that happened, you lament over and confess those things that didn't go as you'd planned and maybe your sinful responses to those or just an acceptance of what is. And then you look forward to the next day and you say, God, uh, I need you, even as I go to sleep, I need you to wake up tomorrow and prepare me for the day ahead. Um, I, I'm gonna close with the story. One of my favorite uh, examples of this prayer comes from um, Susanna Wesley. So you read any book on prayer and you're gonna come across Susanna Wesley's story. She's been called the mother of Methodism. So if you grew up in the United Methodist Church, Susanna Wesley's your gal. Uh, she was the, the mother of John and Charles Wesley. 
And a lot of people are familiar with uh, this uh, prayer life of hers, but not a lot of people know her story and understand what she went through and the kind of life that she lived and the suffering that she went through. She was uh, a gal who was married to a pastor. They had a terrible marriage, for the most part, most people say. They could not agree on anything down to the smallest decisions, right? Like some of you know this, you live this, like they just could not come to terms and get on the same page. She had 19 children. Nine of them died in infancy. Her husband would leave her and travel for long periods of time, leaving her alone to care for uh, one of her child. Uh, two of her children were uh, crippled in different ways. She herself was desperately sick most of her life. They were poor. Uh, her husband got thrown into a debtor's prison at one point because they couldn't pay their bills. Two times, their house burned to the ground. People from the church hated her husband's preaching so much that they came by and slit the udders of their cows and burned their fields multiple times. So this is a woman who knows suffering and knows about what it, a little bit what, what it means to pray what you've got, where you are at some time. She made a vow to God as a child that for every hour of entertainment that she engaged in, she would give an hour to prayer. Now that became really hard with you know, 19 kids. She homeschooled, she managed the, their, their, uh, their, their household. Uh, she taught her kids Latin and Greek, lest you think this is, you know, like, I mean, she's really teaching here. This is like true homeschool. Um, and so she came to this place where in the midst of the busyness of life, she came up with a deal. She negotiated a deal with God. And she said, okay, God, I can't do an hour for all these things that I'm doing. I'm only going to be able to give you two hours a day of prayer. <laughs> and so she told her kids, she, would, she had this practice. She would take her apron and she would throw it up over her head. And she told her kids, when the apron's up over my head and my shoes are off, leave me alone. I'm talking to God. This is holy ground. And she had this practice every single day day. She would remove her shoes and she would make this her altar and her sanctuary in her kitchen in the midst of the brokenness of her life. She raised two of the greatest revivalists in the history of the world. John Wesley would go on to save England from a revolution uh, we, I would liken to the potential of the French Revolution he preached to a million people live. He was still preaching into his 70s to crowds in the thousands without a microphone. His brother, Charles, was kind of like the Bethel Hillsong of their day, right? He wrote over 9,000 hymns, many of which we still sing in our churches today. And when asked, who had the greatest influence on your life? They said, her mother. Pray what you've got pray sometimes. I love how this passage ends. Paul says, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Like he's saying, it's that simple. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. We freak out about knowing the will of God. Should I move to this city? Should I take this job? Should I date this person? Should I be single or married? How many kids should I have? And Paul says, 99.9% .9 of the time, you know what God's will for you is? Rejoice always. Pray continuously. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will. God's will and discerning God's will is not most of the time the big choices of our job, our marriage, our vocation, where we should live. It's the small daily choices to slow down and turn our full attention and a joyful, grateful presence to our Father in prayer. And that kind of daily routine, morning, midday, evening, where we are with what we've got, we do that over a lifetime. Those small habits form us into the kind of people who then make those bigger decisions out of a place of love and peace and joy and gratitude instead of selfishness and anxiety and bitterness. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for your life. Let's pray. Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pray your kingdom come. Your will be done amongst us, on earth, in our lives, where we really are, as it is in heaven. Give us today, God, exactly what we need to thrive. God, help us to see the importance of prayer. 
Forgive us for not praying as we should. Forgive us for the sin of prayerlessness. God, we live most of our lives as functional atheists, unaware of your presence, unaware of and out of tune with and out of touch with your invitations every single moment of our lives to just reorient our life towards unceasing conversation, unbroken conversation with you as our Heavenly Father. God, repair the wounds in our hearts, repair those areas of us that don't want to trust you. And God, teach us what it means as a church to learn to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances, to rejoice always. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take communion now. And uh, this is a reminder to us that um, spiritual formation is about what we do, right? We're unable to pray without ceasing. But we have one who prays for us, who stands at the right hand of the Father, who gave his life so that we could be in relationship with our Heavenly Father. He came to repair the broken relationship between us and God, and he offered up these prayers, and he offered up his life as a sacrifice for us so that we could come into this unceasing fellowship and communion with our Heavenly Father. And so we come today reminded that this is not about uh, disciplining ourselves only or some legalistic checklist of things we have to do, but rather what's already been done for us in the invitation to a banquet, to a feast with our Heavenly Father. That's the foundation of that feast is grace, not what we've done, but what Jesus has done for us. And so we want to come and invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to come and receive communion with us. We have stations in the front, stations in the back. You can take a piece of the bread, tear it off and dip it into the cup and return to your seat. Just be reminded that your Heavenly Father loves you that he is for you, that he's invited you into deep relationship. He's invited you to pray what you've got, where you are right now. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you can stay in your seat as others come. This is a family meal to be shared by those who are disciples of Jesus. So we're glad that you're here, but we'd invite you to stay where you are. So let's take a moment, let's confess. Let's just cry out to God and be honest with God. Maybe it's the first time in church in a while you've been able to be honest with God about where you're really at, where you're really struggling, where that anger and bitterness and anxiety and loneliness and sadness, where are you, right? Where are you right now with God? Just tell him. And after you have a time to confess and receive his assurance, come and take communion with us.